Hello everyone, this is Dom with the Logos Project, and in this episode, we continue this series on Mary and her role. Moving forward with uh, Genesis 3, the fall. So, you know the story, the serpent, the tree, Eve, Adam... It says in verse 6 of chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food um, and that it was a delight to the eyes, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I do find an interesting comparison here with the terms to take and to eat and then to give, right? You see this in the account of the Last Supper where Jesus takes the bread and he eats and then he gives to his disciples and so the fact that jesus is the fruit of the tree of life which is the cross is an interesting connection here that surely john is drawing from now john's gospel is replete with references to genesis and to the idea of new creation now why is john so hooked on this concept of new creation which oftentimes comes out as baptismal theology like in john 9 john 1 and john 19 and even in in the letters of saint paul you find references to baptism as this process of new creation and so i think that it has to do with john's connection to the essenes through john the baptist but that's a whole different topic but that's interesting to um, think about now i want to move forward and look at, obviously, Genesis 3.15, what, what has been called the Proto-Evangelium, or Proto-Evangelium, which means, you know, the first gospel, the first good news, which is the first promise of redemption after the fall. And God says to the serpent here, I would put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, of course, there's been debate over the pronoun he, because Jerome, when he translates the Hebrew into the Latin, the Vulgate translation is um, the Latin from Jerome. He translates Ipsa for he, so basically he translates it into she. And there's several reasons because, you know, one of the Hebrew letters could change it to she or he based on the length of that letter. And so it could have been a typo, we don't know. But either way, what we have here is the seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. And also we could connect this to not just Jerome, but even the Jews. If you read the story of Judith and her crushing of the head of the enemy at the gate. So it's not just Jerome. There's a, you know, a back and forth here. Basically, Eve conquering the serpent is the promise of redemption here. That the woman will, in fact, there will be an opposite of Eve where it will be reversed. The curse will be reversed. But uh, how? Well, it's through her seed, which is interesting. How, how would a woman have a seed? So we get into the idea of the virginal conception of Jesus. Um, but in any regards, here we have, he shall bruise your head. So the seed of the woman, which you could say she bruises the head of the serpent through her seed, right? And you shall bruise his heel, the heel of the seed or of the woman. So one thing I can think of here is Thomas Aquinas's doctrine called the double literal sense of scripture, where certain passages, especially in John, which we'll get into, could be read in two different ways, which are congruous, right? It's actually sometimes done on purpose. For example, when John says, you know, you have to be born again, the word again could be above and it could be again. And in fact, he's 
actually probably playing with the word on purpose, which means you need to be born again, and to be born again means to be born from above. So you have this a lot, but either way, it's not important for the argument at hand. So the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bite the heel of the seed. And so what's interesting here is we can get into how if he bites the heel of the seed, that's the death of Jesus. Uh, you could say, well, what if he bites the heel of the woman? Well, we can get into this interesting concept of the death of Mary at the cross, which is another interesting topic. But again, it's a tangent that's not really important here. What is important is that the image is interesting because if you try to kill a serpent, if you miss its head, or even sometimes if you get its head, it's kind of tricky, right? Because especially if the serpent is venomous, it can find a way to kind of bite you. And anyone who's tried to catch a serpent knows how you have to be very, very careful because the serpent can bite you, and if it's venomous, it can kill you. So you have this kind of face-off between the serpent and the seed, and both end up somehow dying, but the head of the serpent is crushed. So it's kind of a victory, but is it really? How come he got bit by the serpent? So it's a very interesting reversal of the curse here that, you know, as Christians, we already know how it works. So... Verse 16 says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, this inevitably reminds us of Revelation 12, especially verse 2. So the woman in the heavens was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And so we find out that that woman clothed the sun with the crown of 12 stars, gives birth to a seed, right, to a child who rules the nation with the rod of irons, which is a reference to Psalm 2. Um, and the point being here, though, is that Revelation 12 is playing off of Genesis 3 very explicitly. And so what does it mean for the woman to have birth pangs, And uh, as we see in Revelation 12? So a lot going on here, and I hope to break that open for us. Now, one thing interesting that I want to point out in passing is if you look at verse 17, it ends with, Cursed is the ground because of you. So he's talking to Adam here. And so, in other words, the ground was blessed and the garden was placed in fertile and full of life and blessing, you know, multiply, talking to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. But here the ground is cursed and it says, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then verse 18 talks about thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, which reminds us of the new Adam in a new garden sweating blood. You know, and I'm talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we find out that he gets crowned with thorns, and he's scourged by the Romans, and eventually placed on the tree, which, as we saw earlier uh, in last episode, is the tree of life is in the garden. And so we have all this Genesis imagery that shows up later in John, and also the synoptics. But I want to remind the listener how we started last episode, which is the fact that the heavenly reality is the blueprint. It's what the shadows are based off of, even though the shadows come before chronologically. So you kind of have an ontological priority to the blueprint, which is the idea of the heavenly Jerusalem is the blueprint of the earthly one. And so it's important to understand that the heavenly reality is the fullness, the glory, the eschatological fulfillment of all those earthly things that merely point to it. So Adam really is kind of a, a shadow of Jesus, which is what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. It means to be created in the image of the Son, because the Son is the image of the Father. And if we're the image of the Father, then we're sons too. And so we have this beautiful 
what the church has come to call not simply the Imago Dei, but the Imago Christi. And so Jesus reveals man to himself or herself more fully. And so really also the difference between the sexes, right, the genders, uh, the woman and the man, is also going to come into play in a really interesting way when it comes to priesthood, when it comes to the temple, when it comes to the church and Christ, and all this we hope to break open for the listener. So... Moving forward in Genesis, uh, we get to verse 20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, what I find interesting is in verse 22, it says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. So really, the, the drama here in Genesis 3 is man attempting to become God and yet failing miserably in introducing sin into the world and being a slave to sin, right? And separating heaven from earth. And that's what the expulsion from Eden represents. And so what's interesting here, though, is that we have behold the man, which is Adam. The reason why I bring this up, because it reminds me of Philippians 2, where Paul talks about Jesus being in the form of God, but not grasping at it, which that grasping, it reminds me of grasping the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so scholars have seen this imagery in the background of the hymn in Philippians 2, and T. Wright talks about this as well, which is that Jesus here is acting as a counter-Adam in a certain sense, right? He's the opposite. He's not grasping at the divine, and yet he is divine, which is the paradox here. But rather he emptied himself, right? The kenosis of God here. He emptied himself being in the form of man, right? Morphe in Greek form here is the essence. He was fully human and became a slave, a servant, right? And that humility, right? Not grasping at divinity. It's exemplified in his death on the cross, which is talked about as obedience to the Father, And that death is why he's glorified. That obedience is why he's glorified. So it's not the disobedience of Adam. And so here I find it interesting that we have this kind of behold the man. And also, as we'll see very, very soon, um, or maybe next episode, is that John in chapter 19, right, presents Jesus, right? Pilate says, behold the man. And then he talks about Jesus being the king of the Jews and the Jews saying, he's not our king. You know, we have no king but Caesar, which is literally the paradigmatic opposite. They're being Adams and not like Christ because they're attributing this divine power to Caesar, who is merely a man, which is the whole theme of Philippians 2. It's the inversion, right? It's obedience and death for love of others is what is true power. And so you have this beautiful dichotomy here that I think needs to be read into John's gospel, especially chapter 19 when Pilate says, Behold the man. Now going back to verse 20. So, you know, we were reading verse 22, which said, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And then verse 20, you have the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And so you have both Adam and Eve here um, being presented as, I would say, archetypes, if that makes sense. Now, it also says in the rest of verse 22, I'll just read the whole thing. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and died and lost his image-bearingness in a certain sense. It's, it's not completely lost, but it's marred by sin. 
And what happens is that heaven and earth are separated. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, right? Exile, death, and sin are connected here in the story. But Adam and Eve are out of the garden. Why? Lest they reach out their hands to the tree of life and eat and then live forever. Now, based on everything we've been saying, if the cross is the tree of life and Jesus is the fruit of that tree, and then we read John 6, which says that if we eat of the fruit, then we will live forever, then we see here the tension and the story and the archetypes playing themselves out. And so we look forward to that time when we can be restored to the garden where heaven and earth are reunited and we can receive the fruit of the tree of life and live forever, that divine life, Zoe in Greek. Okay, so moving forward, now we're going to jump away from Genesis and we're going to dive right into John because John really is the locus of my focus here, (laughs) locus of my focus. And the reason why is because I think John is replete with Genesis references. And so we're going to start from the beginning, pun intended. And John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning. So in the beginning was the word, right? In verse 2 it says, he was in the beginning with God. So this is clearly a new beginning, a new creation. And it says in actually verse 4 is pretty short. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So remember we talked about the tree of life and the fruit which gives life. And so Jesus is this life. But the life is the light of men. And we talked about baptism being a new creation and the early church talking about baptism as the sacrament of illumination where we receive the Spirit. And if you go back to John 9, the blind person, when he goes into the pool of Siloam, he is able to finally see his sight is restored and his sins are forgiven. And so verse 5 then of John 1 says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it so we see these references here to Genesis 1 again where God separates the light from the darkness so the theme of the light becomes very important for John which in fact has resemblances with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the community of Qumran but one thing I want to quote real quick is Justin Martyr in the early second century talks about baptism when he's writing his uh, third apology he says after we have thus washed him right, the the catechumen, the new Christian. We offer hearty prayers in common for ourselves and for the illuminated person, right, for the baptized person. So we'll get back to baptism and why it's considered to be a process of illumination. Not, Not a process, but a moment of illumination, the sacrament of illumination. And you can think about Paul in Acts after the road to Damascus. He's blinded by the light. So verse 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So think of Paul here, right? Paul persecuting the early church. And then verse 11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Paul again, right? A Jew who rejects the Messiah. And so that's why when he encounters Jesus, he's blinded, because he is unable to see. But when he's baptized... Right, Like in John 9 with the person who can't walk and who's blind, his eyes are opened, the shackles fall from his eyes. And then verse 12, John 1 says, But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So baptism makes us children of God, and that's what it means to be illuminated. So, okay, moving forward. Oh, another point here is interesting is that the fact that this idea of becoming a son of God is brought up in John 1 points also to Genesis 1 where Adam is described as 
being made in the image of God, which is father-son terminology. The child, the son, is the image of the father, right? And we see this in Christian theology with Jesus being the image of the father. So verse 14 of John 1 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, yeah, everything is coming back together. It's connecting the word Father. He is finally mentioned for the first time in John 1. And it's in reference to the Son, who is Jesus. And he is seen as the fullness of grace and truth, right? His glory is seen. So, um, also in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, right? He being Jesus. Okay, there's a lot going on here. I want to skip down to verse 26 of John 1, where it says, John answered them, I baptized with water. And then verse 28, These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So, baptism shows up right water right and then we hear for this purpose i came baptizing with water john speaking to the pharisees and it says john bore witness quote i saw the spirit descend from heaven right the huach the numa i saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him right while he's baptizing jesus so the light and the darkness is brought forth the spirit descends upon the son of the father who is in the water of the new creation and finally it says he who sent me to baptize with water said to me right john is speaking here about his vocation he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain this is he who baptizes with the holy spirit and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, Jesus here is clearly being portrayed as the new Adam, right? The new Adam of the new creation. Now, to make this even more explicit, verse 29 says, the next day, right? So we have the whole prologue of, um, you know, in the beginning was the word, introduction of John. And then it says, the next day in verse 29 but then you go to verse 35 and it says the next day and then you go to verse 43 and it says the next day so we have a progression here of three times repeated the next day in this new creation account of the beginning of john's gospel which begins in the beginning and then you know remember there's no chapters in the original greek but chapter two begins with on the third day there was a wedding so the next day, the next day, the next day, and then the third day. So we're at day six, and what do we have? A wedding. What is going on here? Well, in Genesis 1, you have this succession of six days. And on the sixth day, man and woman, he created them, and they're in the image of God. And in Genesis 2, it draws this out by showing that Adam and Eve rejoice in each other's companionship. And Eve is the flesh of Adam's flesh and the bone of Adam's bones. And so, in a certain sense, Eve is taken out of Adam, and she shares the same flesh as Adam. And now, in the new creation, Adam is taken out of the new Eve and shares the same flesh as the new Eve. And so, this is why you have a paradoxical reversal, where everything is being renewed, and you have these beautiful, symmetric patterns, which calls back to what we read in Colossians and Hebrews, which is that earthly things are shadows of the divine. But when the divine comes down, 
it takes flesh. And so the relationship of Jesus to Mary is one in which Jesus shares the flesh of her flesh and the bone of her bones. And so what is this wedding here? So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And so Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Mary is clearly the mother of Jesus. She's not the spouse of Jesus. If you're a Catholic listening, I recommend reading uh, Matthias Shaban. The St. Paul Center has been translating his works, so if you're looking for his works, and he talks about this as the the fact that Mary's relationship with Jesus is a mother-son relationship, but it's also in a mystical way a spousal relationship. And we'll see how. I mean, the first thing you could say is that Mary is a Christian. I mean, she's part of the church, and the church is the spouse of Christ. Therefore, if Mary is part of the church and the church is the spouse of Christ, then Mary is also the spouse of Christ, just like me and you are the spouses of Christ. And you might say, well, she's the mother. Well, yeah, but we're men, and yet we're the spouses of Christ. How does that work, right? So what we're dealing with here is a different order of relationships. It's a mystical order where our souls are the spouses, the receptacles of God's grace, right? The receiving of God's grace is the archetype of the feminine and Christ being the one who pours himself into us, right? So one thing I want to point to is uh, 1 Kings chapter 2 where uh, Solomon is made king. And it says in verse 13 that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So I'm sure you guys remember Bathsheba from the debacle with David. And in other words, Solomon is the son of David and Bathsheba. So Bathsheba is the mother of Solomon, who has just become king. And so again, verse 13 says, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, which is basically Solomon's brother, right? Adonijah is Solomon's brother. So there's feuding going on here. He came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Verse 16 has Adonijah say to Bathsheba, I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. Verse 18 says, Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak for you to the king. So I skipped the request. It had to do with him receiving a woman as a, as a spouse. But he, he's basically plotting to overthrow Solomon. So verses 19 through 20 basically says, Then he sat on his throne, speaking of Solomon, and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So Bathsheba is the queen mother, and we'll have to talk about queen mothers in the ancient Near East, especially in Israel. There's a great doctoral dissertation, or it might be a master's dissertation, I don't remember, that talks about the list of the queen mothers in the Book of Kings and why they're listed next to the kings, especially for the southern kings and not the northern kings. So that's very interesting. So what we have here is Jesus saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she knows that he will listen to her, which is interesting because of her role as the mother. So that's just something I'm going to point out. And I'll have to do an episode on queen mothers in the ancient Near East. But she's clearly portrayed as a woman during a wedding on the sixth day of a new creation account who knows that her son will listen to her. Thank you.